Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, are you a fan of continuity in life? Oh, sure. I love in the most logical way so that when a string of words, it is understood or put together. I, too, make sense when words prefer it in a way that complete sentences and forms string together. It's much easier to understand, yeah? It's generally a lot easier to understand. Well, was there, was there just some sort of asynchronicity going on there? I don't know. It felt a little weird, didn't it? Yeah. A yeah. little skipping about. Kind no. of felt like David Lynch just edited us. Yes. Noel, our editor. All right. Well, let's shake that off. Blah, blah, blah. All right. And, uh, and, and move forward because, indeed, continuity is, uh, is an important part of the way that we perceive the world and, and, and how we make sense of the world. But to what extent is it an illusion? How much of the perceived continuity uh, in life is just uh, sort of a, an accident of the brain. You know, I was thinking about this lately because I'm watching the Olympics. Oh, and the Winter I, Olympics? The Winter Olympics yeah. in Sochi. And I don't have cable or satellite TV, and I'm super lazy, and I didn't go get some rabbit ear antennas. Instead, I'm streaming it to my Roku player through an app called US TV Now. US TV Now. And anyway, the point is, is that there are so many weird time lapses in the streaming <laughs> that it really does feel like David Lynch is presenting the Olympics. And there's all sorts of odd conversation uh, loopbacks that happen three, four times. And it starts to feel like just even those little tweaks are putting me into a different universe, into an alternate universe. And I thought about that, just that that little tweak can really be unsettling and decentering. Yeah, I mean that's just the way that our 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 brain is seeing and hearing things. We get these chunks uh, that uh, even though they're they're out of sequence uh, due to the realities of uh, of our time system here on Earth, uh, but we can't help but try and piece them together and make sense of it because that's what our brains do all the time. Yeah, and we really take for granted this idea of perceptual constancy and how we see the world. Because if you see an image in front of you, think, ah, oh, that's that's just something that's that is exactly as it is that I'm perceiving it. Um, just as it is in reality. And nothing could be further from the truth. It is a constructed reality by your brain, by your visual system, um, which analyzes, let's slow down that moment and you're watching the Sochi Olympics, right? It analyzes the interactions between visible electromagnetic waves and the objects in our environment. So not just the, you know, what I'm watching on the TV screen, but the light in the room, the dimensions of that room, all of that is being penciled in by a little artist in my brain, essentially, trying to tell me what I'm seeing. Yeah, we often experience reality with this idea that, hey, it's it's me experiencing reality. And ultimately, mm-hmm. that's the truth. You are your body. So anything your body does, it's all working together as a single unit. But when you start breaking it down, you realize that you are your conscious mind, and your conscious mind is just kind of the froth on the beer that is the brain. And then... It's, it's, it, and that beer is just setting in a dark room and it's only getting information, um, passed on to it, uh, from these, from these, these eyes that are outside of the room, uh, outside of the, uh, the, the, the brain itself. So you're getting this information passed to the brain and then to the mind. And, uh, it's not a 100% accurate version of what is actually going on outside the room. 
Yeah, we talked about this a little bit uh, with Lilliputian hallucinations and yeah. how that how our brains have to create this perceptual constancy. And if you think about it, it's doing this by reconstructing a three dimensional dimensional world with two dimensional images on your retinas. Yeah. And so when you look at an object, each of your eyes sees a slightly different picture. So think about a uh, fork and a plate on um, the table. Okay. Now you're Done. okay. So your brain has to move between these two objects and create scale and shape. And there has to be a perceptual constancy in there in place. And it's doing that behind the scenes with a lot of different processes. We're talking about monocular vision, providing the image perceived by each eye separately. And then you have binocular vision that's getting in on, on the, the play here. And if you're looking at something in the distance, then you have to keep in mind that there's something like atmospheric perspective, which is created by the dust particles and water vapor in the air, which then color the way that you see an object. Yeah, something farther away from you is going to look a little hazy, a little blurry. Yeah, yeah, and we know that damage to the brain can sometimes create gaps in that visual data that comes into play. And we also know that our brain, when it doesn't have that data, will hallucinate an image for you. So again, this hold on reality, this this illusion of continuity is just a very tenuous thing here. Yeah, and it's a, and again, it's also worth remembering that your brain is not passing on all the information to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, There's a lot of uh, computation uh, that's going on beneath the surface. Uh, one example of this came from a, a study uh, from the University of Arizona uh, from a doctoral degree candidate uh, Jay Sanganetti, published in the journal Psychological Science. And uh, they uh, took uh, various subjects and they had them look at these images where you had an abstract dark center of an image and then white on the sides. And on some of these, there was just abstraction. They did, there was no actual picture. It's just white and dark. But in others, you had these white seahorse shapes on the sides. So they uh, they flashed these at everyone's uh, at everyone in the study. And some people got the seahorse. Some people got the abstract nonsense. Uh, but they found that uh, that uh, that in the brain, when they looked at the brain activity, there was identification of the seahorse going on, even when people didn't consciously see the seahorse. It's like the brain was identifying wow. it and saying, "Ah, seahorse," but then it doesn't pass the information on to your your conscious uh, understanding. It's it's happening at a subconscious level. So, so saying seahorse, but not seahorse. Yeah, so it's sometimes you are seeing things, mm-hmm. but you are not consciously seeing them because it's not important. Uh, to your to your immediate uh, understanding of the world around you, but you know how does that subconsciously color the things that do rise to the top of that froth on the beer, right? Right, which is the whole other thing that we could get into. But we are, we are interested in, in looking at this illusion of continuity and seeing how it games us in certain ways. And certainly, one of the ways that we have mentioned before is uh, something that is exploited by magicians, and it's called the retention vanish, that very iconic trick in which you see the coin go from one hand to the other. And it happens when there's a lag in the brain's perception of motion, and this is called persistence of vision. And the audience will actually see the coin, say, transfer from the right to the left palm for a split second after the hands separate. And that is because... Visual neurons don't stop firing once a given stimulus, here the coin, is no longer present. So even though that coin wasn't necessarily deposited into the left hand, mm-hmm. uh, the last image that your brain saw looked like it, and it's not going to stop that process and say, oh, wait, hold on, 
in a split one fiftieth of a second here, we think that it actually didn't get transferred. It's going to continue to fire, and you're going to have this this false perception of continuity into the other hand. Yeah, it's crazy. Again, your brain is filling in the gaps for you in order to give you the complete picture. It's like a reporter has been sent out into the city to get a story, finds out certain bits of information, and is just filling in uh, the the gaps in what happened. And uh, the, the way they fill in the gaps, it's it's the way it likely happened. All right, somebody uh, was seen at point A, and then they were seen at point B. It stands to reason they walked down the street from point A to point B, but maybe not. Well, and I was just thinking about this too. Aren't we even getting to the point with meta keywords and the way that we use the internet? Aren't we sort of Filling that in, can't you look at a, a like a pool of meta keywords mm-hmm. for an article and immediately start to fill in those gaps yourself? Yeah. So if you see something like you know illusion of continuity, uh, visual visual perception, persistence of vision, you begin to understand the story that's developing there. Yeah. Or look at any movie trailer, especially movie trailers for films that are not that inventive and and that uh, yeah. stick uh, stick rather closely to the accepted tropes. Oftentimes you'll look at a, at the extended trailer for the film and you, you say, hey, well, I just saw the film. There's absolutely no reason to see it because you were given the little p- points, the little uh, the little important moments along the way, and then your brain just fills in the rest. And you, based on previous knowledge, you know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, and movies are the ultimate illusion of continuity. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, it turns out that 27.5 hertz... This is a sequence of still photograph slides that are displayed at or about this rate of presentation gives us the illusion of motion. Uh, so like the basic flip book, like a horse yes. running. Yes. Uh, you flip the pages fast enough and it looks like a little horse is, is running around there, though obviously it is not. Yeah. So motion pictures or, or those horses that you see are really just a sequence of those still images at 24 frames. Excuse me, 24 frames per second, and that exceeds something called the temporal resolving properties of the human visual system. So it's outside of the zone of detection. Yeah. So if you're looking at 35 millimeter film projection, each still is presented for 148th of a second, alternating with a black frame for roughly the same duration, and the eye perceives the images as just one fluid scene. But old timey films, mm-hmm. we we uh, perceive that gap, right? Yeah. And you get that re- kind of herky-jerky motion that yeah. you get this, this sort of this unreal uh, idea of movement, the, the kind of unreal movement that is generally retained in stop-motion animation. Yeah, and that's because the frame rate is clocking in at 17 to 18 frame rates per second. It's too low. So the brain says, ah, I see something here. There is a discontinuity. And in this respect, this 27.5 hertz it also translates to sound and how sound begins to form a sort of continuity. And this is the, this is the idea that I'm going da 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 da. You hear each individual beat, but if we were to speed that up enough, it would just be one constant, right? Exactly, because yeah. the molecules are vibrating at that speed and they're creating that sort of bzzz, that continuity. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daniel J. Levitin, who wrote the book. This is your brain on music talks about that. And he uses the example of putting a playing card in the spokes of a wheel. He says at slow speeds, you hear the click, 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 click of the card, but at higher speeds, the clicks run together and they cease to be perceived as individual noises, but now as a continuous buzz. And he says a tone you can actually hum along to a pitch. Huh. And that's sort of the magic of this continuity of sound and motion. All right, so on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about why Spider-Man, you know that gif, why he is such a good groover. 
All right, we're back. Dancing Spider-Man. Yes. Uh, this is just one of those gifts that's been around forever where the, the this uh, this little kind of pixelated the Spider-Man, uh, you know, maybe it was a real person dancing in the original footage, but it's just kind of it's kind of a, uh, a little artifact on the web that just won't go away. And you see him sort of sashaying, I guess is the, the correct uh, descriptive term, uh, back and forth and kind of, this kind of, is he snapping his fingers or am I just... I don't know. He seems to be doing the Charleston sometimes and then he kind of goes into the disco moves. Um, he's on a white background, and it's just it's a very simple animated GIF, but the great thing about it is that you can play nearly any piece of music to it, and Spider-Man seems to keep time. Yes, you can you can throw classical music on it, and he seems to be uh, uh, sashaying back and forth to Mozart. You can throw, uh, throw on some dubstep, and he seems to be really uh, jamming out to that as well, and everything in between. No matter what the genre, what the track, what the, what the, the speed, uh, you know, what, the, what, what are the beats per minute happen to be, he still seems to be dancing to that particular song. And it's a real insight into the human proclivity for synchronicity. Right. Because there's nothing magic about the Spider-Man gif. It's just this gif of this dude dancing in a Spider-Man costume. Uh, but when we look at it, we can't help but find the ways that it matches up. We can't help but, but look at it and say, hey, this fits perfectly with the music. Yeah. Now, before we get into how this actually happens or this illusion of synchroni- synchronicity happens, I wanted to mention that when it comes to the visual cortex, it is mapping a visual of how the pitch and tone in a, in a song are changing. And in turn, music moves us because we envision movement in it. So we can't help but look at something like this animated GIF and start to really synchronize our own um, interpretations of the music and the movements yeah. with what we're seeing. Yeah, we've talked about before when we talked about the way music uh, and art moves us, uh, that uh, the music that tends to really resonate the most with us, you know, th- think about the songs that really give you chills or or just, you know, really, you know, captures your imagination. Mm-hmm. Generally, you're talking about places where, where there's definite movement going on in the song. There's some sort of rising action or it's descending or it's there's a sudden drop, uh, you, you name it. But there's there's something coming together or pulling apart, and, and that's what we latch on to. Yeah, and it's no coincidence that music is really effective um, and therapeutic with Parkinson's patients and stroke patients and coordinating their movements, again, because of the visual cortex in this idea that we're trying to sync up to the thing that we're listening to and we're seeing. So I wanted to mention that Radiolab's Jody Avragon has a great explanation of why Spider-Man is such a good dancer and she talked to someone by the name of Devin McCauley, who works in the Timing, Attention, and Perception Lab at Michigan State University. And he says that humans are really flexible timekeepers. He says we have a tendency to pay much more attention to events that are synchronous than asynchronous. And so this would bias our attention to time points that provide evidence for Spider-Man dancing synchronously with the music. We are ignoring the times that he's out of time with music. You know, and this this ties in really closely with the episode we just did on reincarnation. We talked about uh, families looking at uh, like a, what a child is is saying about an imaginary friend mm-hmm. or about some phobia that they seem to have, and then how they end up matching that up with uh, someone who is recently deceased and their story. You end up ignoring all the different places where it doesn't come together, and you focus on the one or two places even that it does come together. 
Um, another example of this that uh, that instantly came to mind when we were doing the research, uh, I give you two rather distinct things. On one hand, The Wizard of Oz, and on the other <laughs> hand, Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. Yes, because the, here we yeah. have a great example of these two independent artistic works. Right. Yeah, Wizard of Oz did not inspire Dark Side of the Moon, but as your college roommate will uh, will happily tell you, mm-hmm. they sync up really well with each other. You, If you mute Wizard of Oz and you yeah. play Dark Side of the Moon, there are going to be all these moments where the lyrics or the or the, the rise and fall of the music, where it all just comes together perfectly and it seems as if it were meant to be. You also see this with Blade Runner and Dark Side of the Moon. So again, two completely independent works, but the brain thinks that there's a collaboration going on. Yeah, I was actually looking at a website called SyncMovies.com, and they have a number of examples. Some of them, some of them, kind of interesting. Like there was one uh, uh, that they call City Kid, which is uh, Kid A, uh, the Radiohead album, the uh-huh. fabulous album over. Um, uh, the the movie Dark City, which uh, is a movie I love, and so those are two things I can see mixing rather well with each other. I'm less into the uh, idea of say uh, Toy Story in the Attic, where they take Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic and sync it with uh, Pixar's Toy Story. Mm. But again, they have something like 21 different examples of an album and a movie when synced together. They seem to make sense. And magically, all of a sudden, they are synchronous. Now, in the case of Spider-Man, Avergon says that there's something called periodicities. These are movements of various different but related rhythms nestled inside the rhythms of Spider-Man's gyrations. And there are also these nested rhythmic patterns within any given song. Hmm. So she says that when we are watching Spider-Man, when we're listening to a song, our brains pick out two items to match, one from the column of Spider-Man's rhythms and one from the column of the song rhythms, and then matches those up together. Huh. Yeah, because definitely it is a very fluid movement that uh, of this dancing Spider-Man. There, yeah. there, there are no um, you know, sharp points. It's not just him like bonking his pelvis back and forth. Like that's the kind of thing which would would match up with many songs, but not, but certainly not have this universal um, uh, connectedness to uh, music. Yeah, he doesn't do the sprinkler or anything, so there's yeah. no jerky movements. Um, but yeah, they're smooth, they're continuous, and they're short in duration, which help our brains, again, to sync up those two different columns. If they were a little bit longer, if his movements went on for a while, then we would have too many beats that might have been skipped, and huh. that would put some red flags up there in our brains. Interesting. You know, I wonder if anyone has really applied this thinking to the the sinking of movies and music. Because certainly, I'm thinking of slapstick and, and Wizard of Oz, you mm-hmm. know, and just you know the Cowardly Lion and, and all this. And there's not a lot of this kind of fluid movement that would match with any kind of music. So I wonder if anyone out there has like has has looked at something that is very fluid, some mm-hmm. sort of like performance piece with a lot of dance in it, um, or 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 something kind of avant garde. Like I'm thinking maybe of the uh, oh, what's the the gentleman that you're Philip Glass, yeah, Philip Glass, but also on the film side of things, the gentleman that your husband's rather fond of. Oh, um, who makes the really strange art films. Sorry? Matthew Barney. Matthew Barney. Yes. And what is that series called, though? It's Cremaster. Cremaster. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I wonder if that's the sort of uh, property that would that would pair well with just about any kind of mu- music because there's kind of a a performance uh, uh, dance quality to it. Well, and Philip Glass does have a lot of um, pieces that he has done with dance before, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting. Um, but there's his generally his music does not lend itself to sort of any sort of smooth, continuous, or short burst. There, it's usually pretty long right. and drawn out. Um, and then you know the sort of jarring 
changes in the pitch and the tempo. It makes one wonder about the sort of media they consume and the pacing of it all and the ways that our brain likes to say, ah, yes, I like this idea of continuity. Please let me try to create it wherever and whenever I can around me. And indeed, we, we do look for it all around us. And we see this uh, time and time again in our, in our attempts to understand not only how the world works, but the meaning behind why it works, right? When we start trying to, to answer those big questions in life. Why is this happening to me? Why did this happen to the world? And we start looking for these different, uh, different patterns, uh, in the world around us. You could all, you could even say that it's, uh, a synchro destiny. Oh right? dear. That's a word, uh, that Deepak Chopra has, uh, termed, has coined. And, uh, in his, he's suggesting that synchronicity can, quote, accelerate you towards your destiny. Oh, I mean, you're going to be excelled toward your destiny no matter what. Yeah, that's, really. that's generally going to happen. You can just sit in your, your house doing nothing. And uh, it's like the, the old proverb, by doing nothing, all uh, all problems are solved, right? There you go. Um, but, uh, but, but that does not sell books, my friend. No. <laughs> uh, one final thought on, uh, on a synchro destiny. I found this was not uh, Deepak's writings, but someone uh, had, had written about it on a blog, and they said, uh, when you live your life with an appreciation of coincidences and their meaning, coincidences and their meaning, that's that's kind of, that 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 has all the answers in it right there. Because a coincidence, by its very nature, is just a coincidence. Right. There is no meaning behind the coincidence. If you're finding meaning in your coincidences, then... Uh, then that's the problem, well, potentially the problem. You might find some beauty in those coincidences by aspiring reason to them. But if there's reason behind the coincidence, it's not a coincidence, right? Or am I crazy? Um, well, no, I mean, I think that if you take that line of reasoning, you might find yourself in front of the newspaper trying to yes. pick out secret codes and articles. Yes, and covering the walls around you and as well as the tinfoiled windows. It, it can be problematic, right, yeah. if you take that logic uh, too far. Yeah, it's and that's ultimately the the point. You know, use a little balance in your pattern recognition. Uh, don't let your software get too out of whack because uh, finding uh, finding beauty in the world is one thing. Uh, covering your your the walls of your house with newspaper clippings is quite another. For example, my daughter has the Frozen Castle set. The other day, I was looking at it, and the throne looked like a lion's face to me. Ooh. It was what really, does that mean? It was very cool. It was just pattern recognition. Yeah. Uh, and I did not run from it. I just saw it for, for what it was, a plastic chair. All right, so there you have it, um, a little insight into continuity and how we observe it and to what extent it, it is an illusion. And, uh, you know, there's a whole deep end of the pool out there for uh, in terms of uh, Jungian uh, synchronicity that... Uh, Either we'll come back and talk about later, or you can explore on your own time. But it's uh, it, it's one of those areas that gets really deep, really fast, and it's just a little bit a uh, little bit more than we we're looking to um, to cover in this particular episode. In the meantime, though, we'd love to hear your take on this episode. Uh, what kind of music have you tried to pair with Spider-Man? We'll make sure that we put that Spider-Man up on the blogs when this uh, episode uh, publishes, and we'll have a link uh, in the description for the podcast so you can find it. Uh, let us know how your, your pairings went there. Also, is there a particular movie and album pairing that you think is rather magical, that you think comes together perfectly? I myself uh, have in the past, uh, when when I did entertaining, 
uh, that was for somebody other than a toddler. Uh, I would love to take like really uh, bad B movies mm-hmm. and put them on mute and then play funk music over it. And I found that there were often those magical points where it's like the dude in the, in the rubber monster suit looks like he is dancing to the funk music and it's perfect and it seems like it was meant to be. Uh, but I see now that that was just uh, an illusion of my brain. Yeah, but I mean, artistic uh, synchronicity is something entirely into itself. Yeah. So give us your examples of artistic synchronicity, and you can do so by finding us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where all the podcasts live. That's where all the blog posts live. That's where the videos hang out. You can also find links to our various social media accounts, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Google+, uh, SoundCloud, who knows what else. The links are there. Find us, follow us at the uh, at the page of your choice. And, uh, hey, if you listen to us on iTunes, uh, if you haven't already, go in and give us a, a, a really nice positive review it helps the algorithm out that's right and uh, if you would like to send us an email you may do so at below the mind at discovery.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com